0: everyone, welcome to this Roundup. The COVID-19 outbreak reminds us of the fragility of some of our most basic human-made systems. Since we witnessed the cascading collapse of entire food, manufacturing, production and transportation systems, it forces us to evaluate the fundamentals on which we build systems to understand where the vulnerabilities are and what needs to be addressed. To discuss the lessons from COVID-19, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Moshe Vardi to this roundup. Moshe Vardi is a university professor and the George Distinguished Service Professor in Computational Engineering and Director of the Ken Kennedy Institute for Information Technology at Rice University. He's the author and co-author of over 60, 650 papers, as well as two books. Congratulations. He is the recipient of several scientific awards. He is a fellow of several societies and a member of several honorary academies. He holds seven honorary doctorates. He is a senior editor of Communications of the ACM, the premier publication in computing, focusing on societal impact of information technology. But professor Prabhavathi, we are so very honored to have you on this ground up.
1: It's my pleasure to be with you today.
0: Wonderful, professor. Before you begin the presentation, let me ask you this. While systems at all levels are struggling to absorb the shock generated by the ongoing pandemic, it is important to evaluate the core concept on which we have built the systems and on which they operate. What did the shock of COVID-19 teach us so far in how we build the systems over the years? And I believe you have a presentation. So let's go ahead and uh, see your presentation.
1: So, you know, sometimes simple, simple questions do not have simple answers, but I do believe in this case, there is a simple, a simple answer. And this is the dichotomy between efficiency and resilience in the, in the presentation, I will try to give an exposition and I will use a few fields, but in particular one, which is my field computer science. And the other one is also economic, which is the world we all live in. And there is no question that we live in a crisis, but it's important to understand it's not a single crisis. It's a confluence of several crises coming together. Underlying the whole thing is a COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, we are looking at the dashboard, these dashboards every day. They were just in the news this morning. We have reached 200,000 deaths in the United States. It is, it is shocking that we're not shocked anymore by this, that we have almost gotten used to the, to the, you know, the 50,000 and then 100,000 and now 200,000. Unquestionably, we all realize that this has caused a, a, a depression class economic crisis. This is not the parking lot in Disneyland. This is a line, people waiting for a food bank, somewhere in, I think in Los Angeles to get food, waiting for hours in the car to get, to get food because many people don't have, they lost their job. They don't have enough income to buy food. Energy crisis, oil prices are way, way down. Now that may sound like good news, but one for Texas, it's very bad news economically, but for all of us, if oil prices are down, then the incentive to deal with the climate crisis diminishes and I'll come back because I'll talk about the, the climate crisis near the very end. And at the same time we live in a, in a, in a social crisis, deep inequities in American society that have been with us for a long time has been exposed and we had heightened sensitivity and not willing to take certain things anymore. And at the same time, we are in a political crisis. The death of uh, of the notorious RBG takes whatever was going to be a stormy election period to a whole new level. Now let's go back to March, which seems like 10 years ago. In March, the buzzword was flattening the curve. And you could see in March, if you, you can see picture of the chore like this and the purple would be the normal course of an epidemic. And at some point ep- the epidemic slowed down because the virus ran out of new host, you know, people, enough people die and get, Im- get immune. So all pandemics proceed in, in, a, in, a, in a Gaussian shape. And the argument was we need to flatten the curve. It wasn't even necessarily about having overall, having fewer cases, but we need to have a flatter. And why does it have to be flatter? So the hospital will not be overwhelmed. This is the argument was, our hospital were overwhelmed. You may remember what happened in Italy, early in the spring, what happened later in New York, hospital were overwhelmed. Here's an article um, from April, 2020 market watch, nurses are wearing garbage bags. As they battle coronavirus, because there was shortage of PPEs (personal protective equipment), it's like something out of the twilight zone. And and this sense that suddenly the systems were all the systems were not ready, the system were just not ready, which is what you mentioned, Jay Shri, at the beginning. Motivated, inspired, William Garstang, who is an economist at the Brookings Institute, to write a column on March of this year in the in the Wall Street Journal. And he wrote, efficiency is not the only economic virtue. And he asked, what if the relentless pursuit of efficiency, which has dominated American business thinking for decades has made the global economic system more vulnerable to shocks. Mm -hmm. What uh, what, What is resilience? Resilience is ability to recover from illness, depression, adversity, and the like. And he explained, efficiency comes with the optimal adaptation to an existing environment while resilience required the capacity to adapt to disruptive changes in the environment. And he's not the only one that raised this point. This point was raised by different people in in different, different, expressed somewhat differently. Here's, Here's Tom Friedman from May 30th of this year in the New York Times. And you have to remember, Tom Friedman was the high prophet of globalization. And he wrote, greed and globalization set us up for disaster. Over the past 20 years, he wrote, we've been steadily removing main men and natural buffer redundancy, regulation and norms that provide resilience and protection when big system be the ecological, geopolitical or financial get stressed. We've been recklessly removing this buffer out of an obsession with a short term efficiency and growth or without thinking at all. So this point about efficiency, it turns out it's not a new point. It has been said in 1975. That's the earliest reference that I found for it, an article, by Amy Goldberg in environment and planning. And the title is beautiful on the inefficiency of being efficient. And his main point was that if you focus only on efficiency then you have a very, very narrow lens in which you're looking at the problem. And if you're looking at the problem through a narrow lens, you're going to consider a very narrow range of possible solutions. And he said, we have been just too narrow-minded, narrow-mindedly focusing on efficiency. We have to think in a wider way. So I'll give an example, which is just in time manufacturing, JIT, just in time manufacturing. I remember when this was a hot thing in logistics, just in time manufacturing. So the idea was—it probably goes back, I think, 80s and 90s. It was especially hot. Was that keeping inventory is very expensive? First of all, you you buy the parts; that's money invested. That money is not productive money. It just sit, the parts sit idle in a warehouse. You need a warehouse. This is space. You need to maintain the warehouse. All of this costs a lot of money. In the inventory, inventory just sitting there. If we could be more efficient, and the parts will arrive just in time for manufacturing. We will basically be able to keep almost zero inventory, and it will be much more efficient. Now, of course, this assumes best case logistics. Everything does arrive on time. There are no disruptions. So you can see why this comes at the expense, it's very efficient, but it comes at the expense of resilience. And the World Street Journal has been running a sequence of articles called the COVID storm and partly try to ask what has been happening with the, with, the, with the economy. Why did we fail so badly? And you remember when there, you couldn't get paper towel, you couldn't get toilet paper. Why? And again, article what you're doing from August, blame lean manufacturing. Lean manufacturing is, is, a, is the same thing as just-in-time manufacturing. A decades-long effort to eke out more profit by keeping inventory low Left many manufacturers unprepared when COVID 19 struck, and production is unlikely to ramp up significantly anytime soon. The infrastructure for, for, for keeping warehouses and parts and all of this just doesn't exist anymore. And the same thing happened in hospitals. Why did COVID overwhelm hospitals? The answer is a years long drive for efficiency. Health systems have kept a tight train on employee numbers and expanded outpatient care helping their finances by making them less prepared for a medical crisis. We focus so much on efficiency when neglected resilience. And you can find it in other areas of our economy. For example, I, I went back and dug an article from, from 2009. It was called the formula that killed Wall Street. And you ask, why did the economy almost collapse in 2008? After all, Wall Street does risk management. They are in the business of risk management. And the answer was, they call it the formula that killed Wall Street. The formula was called value at risk, which is you try to understand, you want to know with 99%, I will not lose more than a hundred million dollar and I can absorb a hundred million dollar loss, let's say. So they have fancy formulas, very fancy mathematics. But they there now, this fancy mathematics works well for normal times and it did not work well for, for a crisis. So suddenly they had all the mathematical model broke down. It was a black Swan event. All the mathematical model broke down and they had no guidance. So they optimized operations for normal times and did not plan what will happen if we have a real crisis. And so when the crisis happened, Wall Street really was not ready. And you can think about this, this tension between efficient resilience in other, other areas as well. What about governance? Let's quote Winston Churchill, 1947. Many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woo. No one pretended democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except all those other forms have been tried from time to time. So democracy, we know democracy is very inefficient. All we have to do is look at Washington right now. But generally speaking, it is more resilient because more, more branches, more parties are involved in decision-making. So it's a buffer to, to you know, di- dictatorship can make very efficient decisions, but one person can make a mistake. Stalin uh, was warned about uh, the Germany was going to attack. in in June of 1941, but he did not believe the warning. Hitler would not betray him, he said. And the Soviet Union was almost destroyed. It's an interesting question to debate now, how does democracy handle pandemics? So United States did pretty badly in pandemics. On the other hand, federalism was was a source of a problem, but it also enabled certain states to do better than, than other states. So I think we will be discussing it for a long time. And I want to go back to the economic crisis because I think it is related to that. So remember, we saw hundreds of cars, thousands of cars waiting for food banks. This was foreseen. This was, was not unexpected in 2016. There were several articles that talk about the precarity of the American working class and middle class Atlantic monthly, May, 2016, nearly half of Americans would have trouble finding $400 to pay for an emergency. If your brakes break down, it costs $400 to fix them. 47% of Americans did, did don't have a spare $400 to fix their transmission. If you went to $1,000, I'm sorry, your brakes, but if you, in tr- your transmission goes back, which is $1,000, two-thirds of Americans would have trouble paying for this. So in June of this year, Adam Cerwe wrote the Atlantic. It did not have to be like this. The desperation of U.S. Walker in the aftermath of the coronavirus was the product of a series of policy decisions and missed opportunities. We created an economy where two thirds of the people are living on the edge. And I want to give you one example from how does nature deal with this tension between efficiency and resilience. I'm an editor of this publication communication of the ACM ACM stands for Association for Computer machiner- Machinery uh, ACM is the premier so- professional society in computing and communication is their flagship publication and in 2016 we published an article sex as an algorithm Now, this was a very it's a serious scholarly article it looked at sex in the from an evolutionary point of view but through the lens of computation and i think there's a lot of insight we can learn from nature And the question that that Livnat and Papadimitriou asked in 2016 was, we know that if you look computational, people have tried to mimic nature in algorithms. So we have algorithms that are based on mutations. And this is called simulated annealing. There's an algorithm also based on mutation plus a computational simulation of sexual reproduction by crossbreeding two chromosomes. We know that the search based on just mutation is more efficient. It's a better, it's a better search than based on, on, on combination of mutation and sexual reproduction. So why does nature choose a, an algorithm which we have shown is not as good as mutation? Why do the vast majority of animals use sex for reproduction? And they offer an amazing answer. An answer is, it's not about efficiency and optimality. What sexual reproduction does, it generate greater genetic diversity of the population of the species. So each individual is less adapted, than, is less optimally adapted to the environment. But the species has enough genetic diversity that there, there is a sudden dramatic change in the environment the species will survive. Individuals may not, but the species will survive. And so this is so, so sexual reproduction is re, more resilient than production with asexual reproduction. Now you can think of both efficiency and resilience as two facets of optimization. Efficiency you can think of short term optimization. I want to make the expectation analyst expectation for the next quarter. Resilience is about long-term. How do I survive an unforeseen crisis? Well, nature had billions of years to figure out which one is better. And in the long-term, resilience is better because it's about survival. So the T-Rex was incredibly efficient hunting machines. If you've seen the movie, if you've seen the movie, you do not want to to have to run away from a a T-Rex, okay? Jurassic Park, but the, di- the, di- the dinosaur was too efficient but were not resilient. Once there was some cooling of the environment they were cold-blooded they could not survive. Mammals were less efficient but more resilient. So let's look at my own field computer science. We do algorithm. I'm sure people have an algorithm. There is a branch of uh, of computer science that is called the analysis of algorithm. So There is a very famous book, The Art of Computer Programming by Don Knuth. Don Knuth is by now, he must be in his 80s. He's the closest way to patron sense. He's been working on this book from since 1967. So more than 50 years, he's been working on on these books. And you can open the books, and they're wonderful books, and they're all about efficiency. They're all about efficiency. The topic of resilience doesn't show up. So let's show one example why it's important for algorithm to be not only efficient, but also resilient. So there's an algorithm called PageRank and PageRank was the algorithm used by Google search to rank the result of a web search. If you may remember the internet kind of exploded in the, in the mid nineties, you run all the, all kinds of search engine, AltaVista, Lycos, what have you. But the result it would give you, you get lots of, excuse me, junk. I mean, you will have to scroll down page after page to find something good. And then Google came and suddenly poof, the good results are always near the top. You rarely do a Google search and you go to the second page. It's almost always in on the first page. What PageRank does, it looks at the links that relate sites to each other. And the philosophy is that if you have many links pointing to you, then you must be an important website. And if you have many, important website linked to you, then you must be very important website. And if you have many very important websites linked to you, then you're very, very important website, and so on and so forth. And that's how Google did the analysis. But as soon as people discovered it, a whole new industry arose, search engine optimization. And it was all about let's add fake links to fool the Google search engine. So you open a new restaurant, you want your, your restaurant for Japanese food to float to the top in New store, will create for you many fake links to float your website to the top. In other words, PageRank was not resilient. Today, Google does not use PageRank. The pattern has expired. Anybody can use PageRank. What do they use? They won't even tell you because they know that as soon as they tell you, people will start optimizing it. So today it's a trade secret. We don't know what they do. They're not willing to talk about it. I try to get them to write about it. They say, no, trade secret. So I want to talk about other facets of computing, where I think as a discipline, and this is kind of coming self-criticism we've neglected resilience. And I want to use friction as an example. About seven years ago, I wrote an article about friction and I wrote our discipline is dedicated to reducing friction. Latency must be eliminated. Bandwidth must increase. Ubiquity should be universal. Our goal is to reduce the friction of computing, communication as much as possible. Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook CEO said, what is the goal of, of Facebook? Frictionless sharing. Now we know that frictionless sharing does not lead to utopia, it leads to dystopia. Now we're talking is, is, is Facebook destroying democracy. We know of all the problems of, of a filter bubble and fake news and extreme content. And all of them come because it is so too easy to share in Facebook. I know because I'm on Facebook and I share too much. It's just too easy. So having no friction build non-resilient systems. I'll Give you another example. About 10 years ago, there was something called the flash crash. What is the flash crash? The stock market went down 600 points in five, in five minutes. And they had to stop trading. Later analysis by the SEC and the CFTC said it was caused by high frequency trading. Once it start to go down, other trading algorithms jump and jump and jump, and poof, the whole thing crashed. Now, high frequency trading is the whole point is making very, very fast. What's the argument for it? They said, oh, it makes the market more liquid. But even people who were involved in inventing the idea said this is all about making money, it has no social value. It's not clear why the SEC does not establish lower bounds on speed because we know that systems that have no friction are not stable. And I'll come back to this point. Let me take another example from completely different area. Tinder. So Tinder, it's a dating app. I'm a, i never used it, but I'm told you, you, you swipe right if you like, you swipe left if you don't like, and In 2018, uh, Jenna Birch wrote an article asking, why is it so hard to turn a Tinder date into a relationship? And she said, I've been on lots of dates, but no relationship comes out of it. And this has actually been verified by studies who say that if if you meet online, you're less likely to form a steady relationship. And answer is not very, it's not very difficult. When two Tinder parties meet, They know that their investment has been very minimal. So it's an old song, easy come, easy goes. If it doesn't, if it doesn't work out, oh, well, what's the big deal? I'll do another swipe. So having zero friction, it means zero effort, means people are not feeling invested in it. So it's not good to have zero friction. You want people to be invested in the relationship. So imagine that I go to my chemical engineering college, and mechanical engineering colleagues. And I said, "I have an idea for you. Let's eliminate all frictions in mechanical systems." They will say, "You're crazy. We need friction. Your car will not drive on the highway if there's no friction between the tire and the asphalt. In fact, the tire is designed for high friction, and if the tire is old, the friction is too, is too low. you have to replace your tire. So for the world to function, friction is a central concept. it has to be at the right amount, in the right place, in the right time. We have to be, has to be, it's a nuanced picture. It's not, we need friction, we don't need friction. It depends how much and where and when. And computer science does not have this sensibility. We just say, let's get rid of friction instead of asking where should we put friction and to what degree and when. And so I think we need to think back. We want to build a resilient computing system, bring friction back. Let me talk about cybersecurity. I'm sure many of, of the people on, on that in risk are thinking about cybersecurity. This is an actual quote from an email that I received from a colleague of mine who is a security, well known security researcher. And he explained to me, he, I wrote something about security and he said, You got it all wrong. And he explained to me, here's our security work. So it's very you see, this is the language very it's not from an essay, it's from an email. First, somebody builds a thing and it's super useful. Then eventually someone else come along and finds a vulnerability. Then security becomes part of the engineering process. Just like we need to make sure our code does not have bugs that make it crash. We also need to make sure that our code does not have bug that can be exploited for bad purposes. Turn the crank for enough years and eventually security gets better. So it's very clear that his philosophy, what he thinks, that's how that's a philosophy in security, security is an add on. First you build functionality and features. Then later you go and you add security. And in fact, you may remember that in March suddenly Zoom became popular. And then they had to add security because there was no security at the beginning. And people have been Zoom bombed realized there's no security. So at the beginning I had, when I started using Zoom, I just had a Zoom office and anybody could come in. And now we don't do that anymore. Now every meeting, we have to go and create a a, a one-time password and and on and on to create security. But this lack of security is really endemic to computing. So the highest award in computing is called the ACM Turing Award. It's called the Nobel Prize in computing. We are now the computing age is about 75 years old. Okay, going back to um, mid forties. And Three Turing Awards have been given in cryptography, which is a part of security, but it's only a small part. You can ask people, why was there no Turing Award in cybersecurity? The answer is, people tell me, who has done something that would be worth, worthy of a Turing Award in cybersecurity other than cryptography? None. So we still do not know how to build secure systems. We hear every week, we read in the news about another company that has been breached. Uh, and now the issue is not just some leak, some privacy, you know, I, I'm, I think there are, our, our power grid is vulnerable to attack. Our financial system is vulnerable to attack. The weird thing about such attacks, it's not even clear that they're act of war in somebody send a bomber to bomb the, bomb, bomb Manhattan. That's an act of war. But if you mount a a cyber attack on, on uh, wall street, it's not clear. It's it's not even clear. The international does not say that this is an act of war. And you think that people will say, wow, this is a crisis. We must do something urgently. No, people get up, eat a breakfast, eat lunch, eat dinner, go to bed. Nobody has a sense of crisis. And there is a philosophy of the computing field that I think partly is responsible for that. So I want to compare it to what happened with uh, automobiles. You know, Ford Model T, 1908, the Ford Model T rolls off the, the manufacturing line. For 100 years, we've been driving cars and people get killed, we know that. So we have been now trying for 100 years to make cars safer. And we actually have been very good at it. We've reduced mortality, per billion, they call it billion VMT vehicles mile travel. We've been reducing mortality almost every you know, continuously since 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 nineteen oh eight. We decided this, this is so important. There's a national transportation safety board. There's no national cybersecurity board. Even you ask the federal government who's responsible for cybersecurity, it says, well, NSA, NIST. I mean it's not it just it just it just distributed, there's no one oversight. It's not the case that whenever every bridge is analyzed and new rules are being issued, it's just not the culture. And part is, but the culture is, the culture in the computing field is against regulation. They will tell you that regulation stifles innovation, don't regulate us. But I think that cybersecurity without regulation, I don't see how it gets better. I just don't see how it gets better. I mean, insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. Without some government action, security would, cybersecurity will would not get better. Now, I criticized my field. Let me now go criticize, after I've shown that I'm willing to self criticize, let me go criticize economists and business community. So, what is economic efficiency? So, we know that because we have tried to be so efficient, we have underinvested in resilience. And in fact, you look, for example, at the CDC. In February of this year, Trump there was a huge cut to the CDC budget, and Trump was challenging. He says, "Well, all these doctors are doing nothing. If we have a crisis, then we go and we hire these doctors. We hire them when we need them. But of course, when you need them, it's too late to go and try to hire them and, and, and find them and hire them. So you have to be ready for what. You can't just focus on efficiency. We have seen what happened." When you just focus on efficiency. So I went to Investopedia. There is Wikipedia, there is Investopedia. And here's the definition for me Investopedia of economic efficiency. It means that good and factor of productions are distributed or allocated to their most valuable use and waste is minimized. Like from that point of view, a warehouse with parts, it's a waste. Let's minimize it. Furthermore, there is an argument that the free market advocates argue that through individual self-interest and freedom of production, as well as consumption, economic efficiency is achieved and the best interests of society society as a whole are fulfilled. So the free market advocates will tell you the best way to achieve efficiency is get the government out of the equations. Let just the free markets do it. We'll get efficient, efficient economy and the best interest of society will be fulfilled. And I want to challenge it. Does efficiency really guarantee optimality? So you have to go and do a little bit economic theory. There's something called the first welfare theorem. This is the most fundamental theorem in macroeconomics. And what does it say? It says that if you have a market and it is free, that means people are free to trade, free to, to raise prices, free to lower prices, free to manufacture, freedom of consumption, production and, and trade. Then the market will end up in a competitive Pareto optimal equilibrium. Pareto optimal means no one can improve their, their situation without somebody else losing. So this is the argument. This is, this is the fundamental: the same "Free markets produce economic efficiency." But really, all it says that this is an equilibrium. Does it really serve the best interests of society? And interestingly, this question was not asked by economists, by computer scientists. The same Papa Demetrius. So Papa Dimitriou is a person who takes, he called computational lens on other fields. So he asked, we know is isn't an equilibrium. Let's, make, let's for simplicity say Nash equilibrium. He said, let's look at the ratio between the worst possible Nash equilibrium and the social optimum. And this is be called the price of anarchy, because without some government intervention, we could end up in equilibrium, but we don't know which equilibrium. It could be any equilibrium. And what he and and Kutopia showed is you can end up in a, the price of anarchy can be arbitrarily high. So the fact that you are ending up in an equilibrium and therefore it is efficient said nothing about optimality. It does not guarantee at all that the best interests of society as a whole are fulfilled. Okay, so this very important point. Efficiency does not guarantee optimality. But then probably with other people went on and asked another question. So the way you reach equilibrium in free market, there's no magic. Every actor and trader agent has to make some action. I see there is demand, so I'll raise the price. I see that there is demand, I will produce more. It's a sequence of what we call local actions. It's a local search for an equilibrium. Everybody try to improve until you end up in equilibrium. And they says, okay, we know that the then will get to equilibrium, but how long will it get? And what they show is it can get a very, very, very long time. In a complex system, it can take exceedingly long time. but in exceedingly long time, the circumstances are bound to change. You know there will be a, a, a drought, there will be a fire, all kinds of things will happen. supply will go down, or up, prices will change, demand will change, fashion will change. so turns out that the, this, this equilibrium produced by free market that produces supposedly optimal behavior is a mythical character. There's no equilibrium and there's really no efficiency. The free market does not really produce equilibrium because the world keeps changing and therefore it is never really efficient and for sure it is not optimal. So there are a lot of advantages to free market. I'm not trying to say the free market is bad, but we need to understand that part of the mythology has been sold over as free market is mythology and not real hard theory. We can go back more than, more than almost 40 years ago. There was a movie, Wall Street, famous movie. Michael Douglas is, is, is a, playing Gordon Giko, who gives a fiery speech, a very famous speech. Greed is good. He said, greed, for lack of a better word, is good. And why is it good? And it's basically Adam Smith's invisible hand. Everybody is greedy. And out of this, we will get back some optimal result. But actually, every computer science student knows that this is not the case. We talk about greedy algorithms; they just try to improve, and they get stuck in what we call local optimum. It's an optima in the sense that nobody can improve by a local action, but it's very far from the real optimum. You get stuck, and the only way you, you, you get unstuck is by some systemic intervention. So I think in terms of cybersecurity, we are now stuck in a local optimum. The market does not reward investment in security. It rewards investment in functionality and features. So we can call it the market failure and we should discuss what should we do? What's the systemic intervention that is needed? And it could be, you know, for example, maybe we need to change a, a liability laws to make companies more liable, liable for damages in case of, of security breaches. But in my opinion, without some systemic intervention, our situation in cybersecurity will not improve. Interestingly, part of this push for efficiency came from a very famous article by Milton Friedman, a Nobel Prize winning economist, in 1970, in which he argued that the social uh, responsibility of cooperation is to make profits. And the New York Times just had a special issue on this, on this topic. And the headline, which I put here is from the New York Times, greed is good, except when it is bad. And they quoted, for example, it said, I mean, it's worth, really worth going reading the articles. He quoted Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce who wrote, I did not agree with, with Friedman then, and the decades since, since have only exposed his myopia. Just look where the obsession was maximizing profit for shareholders, has brought us terrible economic racial and health inequality, the catastrophe of climate change. It's no wonder that so many young people now believe that capitalism cannot deliver the equal, inclusive, sustainable future they want. And just as a small example of where this uh, 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 pursuit of efficiency has brought us, uh, an article, very recent article in the, in, in the Time, Time magazine, and the title is "The Top 1% of Americans." have taken $50 trillion from the, pop, from the bottom 90%. And they went to 1975, in which the bottom 90% made 67% of all taxable income. The next 9% made 25%. And the top 1% made 9%. So the top 1% did well. They did 9% of the all income. By 2018, the bottom 90% have lost ground to 50%. The top nine, the next nine percent have 28 percent, small change, but the top one percent went from nine percent to 22 percent. When you accumulate, when you look at this transfer of income from 1975 to 2018, that's how they come to the conclusion. The top one percent of Americans have taken 50 trillion dollars from the bottom 90 percent. If you want to understand our politics these charts will explain to you our politics. And I couldn't resist putting this one. I have a joke to trick. I have a joke about trickle trickle down economics, but 99% of you will never get it. Yeah. Now, classical, very classical economic. Talk about something called homo economicus, which is that, uh, Humans are rational, self-interested. They are just trying to, again, they're trying to be efficient and, and maximize their utility. Now, there have been a lot of studies in economics documenting the irrationality of humans. But I think even more important, only in 1956, Herb Simon was a Nobel Prize winning economist. argue for a concept called satisficing. He said, figure out what's good enough and settle for good enough. You don't have to do the optimum. And one of the things is, of course, it is less efficient because you're not getting the optimum result, but it's less resilient. I'm sorry, it's more resilient because you're not trying to squeeze every efficiency out out of the market. Now, let's go back to COVID-19. We see many, many systems, almost any system around us did not work. Hospital, toilet paper, what have you. But one thing did work. Amazingly, the Internet did work. I'm giving this talk now working from home. I have not gone shopping in six months. I do all my undergraduate teaching from home. All my students are, are at home taking my class. The internet held up. Amazing, think about it. Everybody suddenly jumped on Zoom and Zoom held up. What was the key principle that let that happen? And my argument, it is redundancy. So in computing, if you want to build resilient resilience, we use redundancy. We did it, it goes back to the 1940s. If you know a little bit about communication, error correcting code, you want to make sure there's no mistake, add more, add more, add more uh, bits to your transmission. Okay. Um, The body, how does the body handle, handle, there is some, you know, disease, injury, redundancy. You know, there was a famous case, this person that has an iron rod blown into his head. And he not only lived through it, but he kind of functioned. He has some damages, he has some dysfunctionality. But the brain is amazing optimality, amazing plasticity that enables it to repurpose redundant part. and, and uh, you can function after a huge, uh, after a significant damage to your brain. We understand in other areas, for example, banks now are not efficient. They're not efficient because the feds re- demand that they have capital reserve to protect them from a crisis. That's not efficient. That's resilience. That's how we build resilience. I want to go back and, and, and it's interesting to look at the internet. So I want to go back and read to you because this goes back to the 1960s. Paul Baran was a not very well known pioneer who invented some underlying technology of the internet. And the idea was to have distributed communication network. And here is a recent paper that give the history of this, since Baran's motivation for creating his revolutionary approach to communication networking was driven by the dominant issue of the 1960s, the Cold War and the overhanging threat of nuclear annihilation. America's nuclear capability depended on maintaining what the strategic defense community called minimum essential communication, which was the amount of connectivity needed for the US to credibly maintain the threat of mutual destruction. Which most observers believe was essential to deterring the Soviet Union from attempting a preemptive attack. Their worry, the worry was that the Soviet Union will mount an attack to destroy the communication infrastructure of the United States, because then they know that there is no way that the US can mount a counterattack. So you had to have a resilient communication system to mount a counterattack. And if you have the capacity to mount a counterattack, then you are going to determine from, from tying with a preemptive strike. So, if you have seen Dr. Strangelove, this crazy, you know, this crazy idea of mutual destruction that somehow did, did save us from nuclear war at the end, because of this mutual destruction that today I can give this talk on Zoom. It's an amazing turn of events for mutual destruction to we can survive a virus. So. I want to summarize resilience is a fundamental but underappreciated societal need. I talked about computing, I talked about economics. I think other fields can ask the same question, efficiency versus resilience. What we do know is that people and markets are very bad at at, uh, doing two things, very low odds and very slow odds. For example, uh, everybody has, has car insurance. Imagine we made it optional, buy car insurance if you want. Many people will say, no, I'm a careful driver. I don't need car insurance. I have enough money in the bank. I don't need car insurance. The said, say no, you must have car insurance. You want to renew your registration? Show us your car insurance. Part of our problem was climate change. And that's what I want to talk in the last couple of minutes is it's very slow. So we are like the frog in the hot water because it's very slow. There's never a moment we must recognise it. There's never such a moment, and many people are saying that COVID-19 is a small crisis compared to what what is potentially the bigger one, which is climate change. And we all have been watching the, the, with horror the, the fires on the west coast. And if you thought, well, maybe it's not it's not new, it is. The, the intensity has been growing now. You can go and look at acreage burnt, and you can see that it's increasing. Not every year of flood it fluctuates. But we can expect these fires to continue year after year after year. And this is a, a, I mean, this is changing. I mean, California, that used to be the promised land. And now looks like the place people want to escape from. And if you, if you want to really be scared, I recommend reading this book. It's from 2014, I think it's a view from the future. It's a fake history. It's a history, I think, from the 24th century of how Western civilization collapsed because of climate change. So it's a scenario. I mean, you only take it half seriously, but boy, you read it and <laughs> it is scary. And I want to finish with a few shout outs to, to, to relevant points. So my colleague at Rice is an economist. And in 2001, he pointed to that there is a, a trade off for us that each country has somehow to figure out. Many countries as well, you know, we care about economic growth. Other countries should care about climate change. But if we all care about economic growth and, and, and then nobody cares about climate change. The only way to achieve progress in climate, de- dealing with climate change is if we all act somehow collectively. And this is right now we are seeing in fact, international institutions are declining. This idea is that we can somehow ignore international institutions means that we are not going to be able to deal with climate change and that's a huge risk for us. A book just came out by uh, Lee Liv and Andrew, Andrew Russell, and it's called the innovation delusion. And they argue that we put too much focus on innovation and not enough focus on maintenance. And I think this has to do with the issue of again, innovation is about pursuing profits, it's about efficiency and maintenance is about resilience. And they wrote America has been seduced by the false charm of innovation, causing us to chase novelty and pursue disruption when neglecting maintenance in infrastructure in both the public and private sectors. So again, we got, he said, we got too crazy, too, too enamored with innovation and we have neglected uh, maintenance. And I'll close with a book from the 1980s, it was called the Risk Society. It was written by a German sociologist. And the point that he made there was that we live in a very risk society, he called it. There are all kinds of risks that we are ignoring. Climate change is one. He was worried about, uh, about nuclear energy. And in fact, Chernobyl happened two years later. So Adam toos wrote an article in Foreign Policy in which he said the question so vividly exposed by the crisis such as Chernobyl, and the ongoing coronavirus pandemic is how to navigate this world. And I propose that the new buzzword du jour should be resilience, resilience, resilience. Thank you very much.
0: Very true, very true, Professor Wari. Excellent presentation. And I really like your analysis. You gave really good examples, uh, many case studies, and the broader thinking that you showed of, you know, the benefits as well as, you know, the risk on how we are approaching all these, uh, our systems, our problems, very good presentation. So thank you so much for that. And uh, maybe we can uh, stop the presentation now uh, sharing so we can go on uh, with the discussion. Great. Perfect. So I, I really like your analysis. So the system, what it from what you are saying to me what it seems is that we are because we move towards efficiency and uh, we ignore the resilience we ignored understanding risk we ignored understanding how to build resilient resilience into what we do it's the systems at the system level or the species level that is what is missing we do not see the approach in any country from any innovator or any policy maker or any system builder, irrespective of whether it is, you know, systems in cyberspace, or we are seeing systems in geospace, space or space. We do not see that systems thinking or even a species thinking that, and because of that, we are facing many, many problems. Now, system thinking allows us to identify the key drivers or interactions and dynamics of these different variables in the human ecosystem like scientific and economic and social and environmental that policymakers need to, you know, evaluate and understand before they, you know, take decisions on how to create the intervention strategies or how to create uh, adaptive, you know, society, adaptive systems. So we do not see that because we have, as a society, we have failed in understanding what are the different variables that we need to look at? What are the interconnectedness? Where are we connecting to you know, different systems, different you know, uh, industries and different nations? We are not seeing that. As a result, we have seen the shocks of COVID-19 and how we all, every country pretty much, you know, failed in their uh, shock test, in the stress test. But if we, the one example you were talking about, about the nuclear industry, and that made me think that if we take an example of this nuclear power industry, especially in how these organization for economic cooperation and development, the OECD countries, how they approach safety they have a really very good philosophy because they believe in the integrated defense in depth and the approach they have taken is you know into looking into all different variables in how the reactor design and hardware performance and software performance and human and organizational elements each of these variables, how it interconnects and they have focused on integrative economics, which I'm really glad that you were talking a lot about the economics and the economic system. Because if we want to build this resilient system, we do need to understand all these integrative economics and overall system resilience while recognizing that we have to consider a variety of complex interconnected variables. We have to understand much more than what industry we are part of or what country we are part of. So it's not just the education industry or energy industry or IT industry or computing or the government. We need to understand all different industries, all different systems. And we have to keep everything at a species level not even the you know, system level, but species level, because you gave really good examples about California and the wildfires and everybody trying to escape. So if we do not keep the species thinking or the system thinking, then we are never going to be able to not only stop the current pandemic, but even prevent the future pandemic. So do you think that this would be a good place to start about you know thinking as a system or thinking as a species? for
1: our collective path forward? So, you, you know, I think, look, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, the, the, the first, the first, first we have to think about survival. This is first, we have to see, okay, what are down in you know, fact, in fact, you know, it turns out that this pandemic, you know, I mean, if I heard an interview with Nisim Taleb, and someone tried to refer to COVID-19 as a as black swan. He said, "No, black swan is an unforeseen event that happened. I mean, black swan—you really cannot. The idea is the thing happened; you just cannot plan for something—the un, unknown, unknown kind of thing. But uh, the only way you plan, with to, you plan for black swan is by dealing with, with generic resilience, like redundancy. Let's just be, build re- generic resilience. You know, the body builds." You know, we have extra cell for everything, for all, all kinds of unforeseen injuries. But it turns out that the pandemic, you know, th- th- there are videos of Bill Gates, giving Ted talk from 2015. He said, the things that I'm worried about is pandemic because we already had a few, we were lucky and, and none of them exploded, but he said, another one is coming. Nisim Taleb himself thought about possible when he wrote about anti-fragility, he wrote about possible pandemic. He said, this was a foreseen crisis, <laughs> but there could be unforeseen crisis. Climate change is a foreseen crisis for God's sake, right? It's much more difficult to plan for unforeseen crisis. Okay. It's just to say, I mean, think about it for example. Why do we like, why do we like sweet things? Because they have calories. Because basically you never know how to predict when, when your food will come. So you had to be ready for having no food, so you might as well accumulate calories. Well, today it doesn't serve us well, accumulating calories, but accumulating calories was a way to to survive, was a way to build resilience, okay? Very, very thin people did not survive. Now we know that obese people also have a problem, but obesity is a very new thing. So we have to really ask ourselves, what are the, the systemic risks that society is facing? And how do we deal with them? That's on one level. And then we have to have the serious conversation about the unknown unknowns. And to say, how do we build a society that's resilient to the unknown unknowns, okay? And that's much, much harder. That's much, much harder because, well, we don't know what kind of, thing. how do we get ready for something like this? Yes. But for example, I, you know, we know that uh, it is standard uh, financial advice that you should have six months of living expenses in the bank, just if something happens. Well, two thirds of the, of the population cannot save $1,000. So we know that minimum, what you need to have to basically to have a more resilient society, people need to have some money in the bank. So we could try to think of some kind of a program. The goal is not, we are talking about people saving for retirement. We have all these program you know, 401k, 403b, you know, Roth, IRA, all these things to save for retirement. What about saving, saving for, for the purpose of resilience? There's no program. And therefore, most people, we saw that two thirds of the people in this country do not have a thousand dollars to spare. So we have practiced anti resilience in this country, essentially, living on the edge, living on the edge.
0: Yes, yes, no, I, I hear your point, and uh, you gave a really good example about our human body having you know these cells to make sure that our body, when it 's necessary, it can use those cells and heals itself you know from whatever challenges that are going on in the body and that makes me think uh, at, at the moment i 'm also writing a book on this pandemic, and I have finished mm-hmm. half a few chapters you know, and what I have uncovered in that is mind boggling, you know, because this human particle ecosystem that we all are living in, there are trillions and trillions of particles. And what are these particles? Just few proteins and, you know, uh, RNA strand or, you know, small DNA, that will cannot even survive on its own. It's a particle we can't even see. So your point of unknown unknowns, these are the unknown unknowns that we do not understand. And there is, a lot of fear because of this pandemic, and I have been evaluating. I have evaluated all these past pandemics that the uh, human species has gone through over the years, and every time the pandemic has happened, there was something that had shifted in the human ecosystem. Either the war was going on, or you know some other you know scenarios were there, and because of that, it was not just the human's internal metabolism that shifted. But there were a lot of other things that shifted in the environment, and that made me start thinking, you know, that what shifted at the moment? Why did we, why did this virus decided to jump? If, even if let's say it came from bat or any other, you know, place, why did it decide to jump and you know, inhabit the humans? What was the need? Is it possible that the nature, the ecosystem, Is trying to build resilience in humans because there is something has shifted in our environment. So I think there is something you know going on in our nature, in our ecosystem that we don't understand. Perhaps nature has built in you know resilience mechanisms by which you know they, whenever that code is necessary for humans to evolve, it you know creates this situation where, you know, we feel that it's a pandemic, but it is possible that nature thinks that this is a time to, that this particular code, this particular strand of RNA, this particular genomic code is necessary. This particular uh, two proteins are necessary for this genomic code from these, uh, you know, particle. That na- humans need to integrate with, because if you look at our human genome, more than half of it is made of viruses. So, is it possible that you know there is something that has shifted in our human ecosystem? So, the nature decided that we needed that particular segment of the virus for its genomic code, so that we become resilient and we can evolve further. Because all this evolution, human evolution has mostly happened like that. So it is very interesting. I'm still trying to understand. I have uh, scheduled a risk roundup discussion with uh, a scientist from CERN, because there is something you know that we need to understand about the particles, the particle ecosystem and how it creates a vacuum and how it, the changes happen. So it is, it's a topic of discussion for some another day when you know I have finished my analysis. But if we look at this pandemic, there are two contagions, the virus itself and the fear. And they both operate in tandem. And it impacts the behavior of not only consumers, the common man individuals, but also the behavior of corporations, businesses. So the movement that we saw in the capital markets because of this pandemic, it had nothing to do that they were all impacted that significantly so we would see this kind of movement it had nothing to do that there was a necessity for that moment. But that fear that triggered the movement and everybody, you know, started taking decisions because of that fear. And this led to, you know, crash of unprecedented proportion. We saw that so many supply chains, you know, they collapsed. So since the ability to react to changing demand is crucial, What is your take on the supply chain collapse that we witnessed, especially when we needed an ability to react to such changing demand and we failed, you know, I think, you know, in all uh, the
1: criteria? So I think, you know, I think part of this uh, issue of of efficiency versus trading, you have to understand, you know, part of like trading, you know, you have Ricardo. I mean, you know, trading is all about efficiency trading is about efficiency the whole idea of, of you know to one country is better at doing this one country is better at doing that so it's more efficient to let each country do their best so this is kind of very classical economics okay but it ignores it all it's all about efficiency it completely ignores the dimension of resilience so i think we i'm hoping that we are going to see you know a lots of economies are saying let's rethink Let's start to think about the trade efficiency versus resilience. And I think we're going to see a lot of retrenchment of globalization. For example, if, you know, all people will say Mexico, for example, come to the US and says, you guys are crazy of buying this from China. China, first of all, it's very far away. It's also a global competitor. We are just next to you. Let's, let's go into business together. Okay. You want low labor costs? Just come to Mexico. You don't have to go to China. We're not as good as China, but we are closer. We are more friendly than China. I think we are going to see lots of, I mean, the idea, I mean, they, was, they, they you know, when this whole thing started, I couldn't buy hand sanitizers. I remember in March, I was trying to buy hand sanitizer. And eventually, you know, where I ordered hand, hand sanitizers from? From China. <laughs> That's not the only way to get to get hand sanitizers. So, I think there will a lot of rethinking will go into, yes, we're not going to give up on efficiency completely, but how to find the right balance between, between efficiency and resilience. And that means that you're going to think what, you know, maybe certain parts, you know, uh, that are not crucial, certain, certain products, you know, I don't know, um, maybe cosmetic we decide is less important. Let's make cosmetic in China. But uh, but thing that is more important, like hospital equipment for hospital to rely on China for PPEs, was kind of was kind of insane.
0: Yes, yes, I agree with you. It is insane. We made China a manufacturing hub, and we all all the countries depended on that. So when there is a pandemic there, and when their systems collapse, everybody is crude. So you are absolutely right that that is a mistake and that was a mistake and we will have to reevaluate how we move forward because we always jump into action, we meaning every country, every country's decision-makers, we jump into action after a disaster happens and that is not a really good substitute for being no. prepared, especially for a country like United States. So if we look at irrespective of pandemics or wildfires or natural disaster to human-made disaster we can rely on technology to you know give us some sort of early you know alert system but we have not developed any of these alert systems so for pandemic especially you know yes we have an alert systems built in for you know tornadoes and we have an alert system for earthquakes and many natural disasters that is a great progress but we have not focused on wildfires or pandemics because well, in our society Nothing works without incentives. So do you think we have the right incentives for technology development, especially when the market will not do it? For instance, in developing technology to these disease outbreaks or developing vaccines or developing technology out other system for wildfires?
1: Look, I mean, mean, if you look at it, for example, look at, again, I think car safety is very, very good examples. Why did car become safer and safer and safer? Not because of the free market, not because of the free market, basically because of government regulation. And it turns out that if you do regulation the right way, then I remember when uh, I was involved in in some studies 15 years ago and involved, I remember talking from, from people from industry and they wanted a better healthcare system. And they said, we want the government involved because then all of us are on equal footing. So right now, if I make my car safer and you don't, then I spend more money on safety. It's not clear how I turn into better sales. You know, only one company really has been able to take safety with huge investment and make it into a feature and that's Volvo. People buy Volvo because it is safe. But no other company, Advertises for safety, they all advertise for features. When it comes to safety, they have to make government regulation. And they like it to be this way because then nobody can defect. Nobody can say, I will invest less than you. So the, the worry is we'll invest in safety. They will not. And then our car is more expensive than theirs, but go convince the consumer that it's worth, it's worth the money. And so they said, if you establish uniform regulations, and you made sure that this, this is applied when it comes to car, it doesn't only apply to us cars. If Japan wants to sell cars in the United States, they have to meet the same regulation. So we are all on equal footing. So, so in this case, in fact, government regulation, in this case, stimulated innovation. We have increased MPG. The cars are, are, are much, are much more efficient because the government increase had a requirement. You must meet a certain MPG requirement. So regulation is very, very tricky. Regulation is hard. Doing regulation well is hard. Okay. You have to do it. There are all kinds of people will tell you but all the problem was regulation. It's not a panacea, but I would say many life, many things in life is hard. Education is hard. So we struggle. We, 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 try to do the best we can. We learn from our mistake. We keep doing it. So the question is how to do regulation in a way that, that creates innovation and doesn't stifle innovation. Okay. But even innovation, innovation is by itself is not a goal. It's means to an end. You know, Facebook was innovation. Was it a good innovation? Well, people are debating it. People are saying, wouldn't be better off if we didn't have Facebook at all, okay? And so they made tons of money, but is it good for society? And certain things we decided, we don't want them. We decided, for example, that uh, donating donating, uh, kidneys, we do not want people sending kidney, kidney for money. Why? We decided that the society, because it will take advantage of poor people. So we say it is morally wrong to do that. Let's not do that now. So they have a whole other system. They have alternative market system for donating organ have to do if I donate to you, I get credit and you donate to someone else create alternative market. It's not based on money. It's based on, on people doing the right, the right thing. So yes we have to figure it out. Um, There are no easy answers how to do that. We will make mistakes. We'll send some regulation. We will say, no, this did not work out. Let's try something else. The constitution starts, in my opinion with one amazing sentence. We, the people of the United States of America, in order to form a more perfect union, not a perfect union, a more perfect union. And we, we can look now at our union and we see it's very far from perfect. But it's an internal quest to form a more perfect union, yes. and that's how we need to look at. You know, we should need to go back. One says, "Hmm, we made a mistake. We put too much focus on 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 efficiency. Let's rethink it." I mean, what I, what we really need for economies to start thinking about resilience. They have not done it. Yes, yes, absolutely. It has to be. It should be built into microeconomics. This trade-off between efficient and resilience should be built in, and we need lots of people thinking hard. What is, what is how does society find the right? Because it's a delicate balance. Yes, it, okay? is. it is,
0: it's it a delicate is. Absolutely. balance. Absolutely, okay. you give a really good example and I agree with you on the regulation part, you know, but see the regulations for certain problems, every country has to come together and they all need to be unified in making, in drafting those regulations. Now, and in creating also institutions and organizations that can be, do a better job as one institution who has a sole voice in you know, solving the problems. For instance, world health organizations. Now, we are not living in a linear world where actions cause predictable reactions. We all understand that. And we are in fact part of a complex system that we are constantly trying to reconfigure, and that is impacting all of us you know, individually and collectively. So we all are quite aware of the challenges, but as we go through COVID-19, the question that comes to mind is that, yes, you know, all the countries came together, we built you know, in institutions and organizations like CDC and World Health Organization, but how did we not identify the trigger points of pandemic? Who was responsible and why did they fail and how did they fail? At what level the you know, challenges happened? So it, was it in China that you know, we faced uh, the problem or was it at the global level, the World Health Organization or was it CDC, where did we face the problem?
1: So, you know, hospital have something, something called, I think I got it right, uh, Mortality and Mobility Committee. And after every death in a hospital, this committee sits together and analyze what happened. And the proceedings are confidential because they want, they want people to be able to say, I made a mistake. They want a surgeon to say, I made a mistake. And because of my mistake, someone died. And if it's not confidential, then immediately, oh, you made a mistake. We should sue you for, for uh, you know, like you're liable. We should sue you. So everybody would clam up. So, so the idea, it's a little bit like what South Africa did. What did they call it? The reconciliation committee, try to say, let's, let's establish where we come clean without people putting themselves at risk. Let's give people incentive to be truthful. So we do doing analysis to figure out what went wrong. And we do, post, we do what we call postmodern. We go and we learn what mistake did we do? And what do we learn from this mistake? We, we have a board member at Rise who used to be a professional football player. And I asked him once, what happens in, in a dressing room after a game that you won? He said, 5% compliments. You did well, this, this and this, this was good. Congratulations on your victory. But you made so many mistakes. You're just very lucky that your opponents missed these mistakes. Let's go over your mistake because next time you will not be so lucky. So what we need is just to be self-critical and honest about it and create the, the, the societal system that enables us to do, you know, we should have, you know, right, for example, why do people object to Trump calling it the, the Wuhan virus? The virus did emerge in Wuhan, okay? But of course, he didn't say it because he wanted to be geographically accurate. You know, he was laying blame. If you're going to start blaming China, then China is not going to come honest and say, here is what happened. If you come and say, whatever happened, happened. Let's just be, let's have a, a meeting of scientists, not politicians. But we're going to come up with lessons learned from COVID-19. Bring the top epidemiologists and virologists from the world for not, it's too early now, but bring them back, you know, in a year when this is and say, what do we learn from this? What mistake every country every made kind of mistakes, okay? I follow my families in Israel. Israel handled the first round extremely well. And then they thought, oh, we were good. Now we deserve a cookie. Now we can go and go to restaurants because we're good. The virus doesn't care whether you're good or not. <laughs> you know, The virus keeps looking for, for bodies. So now Israel is in a second wave because they thought we were good. So no country, very, very few countries handle it well. And we really need to sit after that and says, okay, lots of failures. What worked well? Let's not lay blame. I mean, this cannot be done by politicians. I mean, scientists need to get together and says, what did we learn from this? How do we get the WHO ready for the next time? How do we get this, the CDC screwed up? We know that. How do we get the CDC ready for next time? What do we do as a society to get ready for next time? Yes, yes,
0: that is um, the right approach.
1: I mean, this is I. You know, I partly I was I was in the I, in the military. And this is the military. This is how the military does it after every operation. they say, okay. Exactly what happened. We're not everybody. The assumption is everybody makes mistakes. But we need to be honest about the mistakes yes. to learn from them. As soon as people says, oh, if I'm honest about my mistakes, then I will pay the price for it. Everybody climbs up. Yes. So the, the answer is the answer is this just you have to be You have to create a culture where people don't take risk by admitting their mistakes. Where instead of saying, oh, you made a mistake, you get demoted. You say, you talk about your mistakes, you get promoted. (laughs) You know, it's open. We need a culture of, of, of improvement.
0: Yes, provide better incentives, right? Instead of punishment, you are right. So I agree with you on that. Now viruses, we know that it doesn't respect borders or any kind of silos that we have, humans have created and as a result we whatever response we all come up with has to be global and has to be intersectoral right so do you think that as we see all these countries are trying to go inwards and be more nationalist we i understand you know we bring the manufacturing back and you know i understand all those uh, near showing uh, solutions that would emerge that could help countries like ours but is it possible that we will be able to generate this global coordination and integrated model that can apply to any and all systems where countries can motivate and justify an integrated multilateral approach to helping national and international systems so that they can recover better you know, for you know, the, any other coming you know, challenges? What are your recommendations?
1: So I think we have confused, I think we got confused. And we thought that globalization meant globalization of, of, of supply chain, global supply chain. And global supply chain, you have to globalize some places but not others. Okay, because you in, in global supply chain, in global trading, we have to balance efficiency versus resilience. But globalization also should mean building global institutions. True global institutions, because we won't be able to deal with climate change unless we build global institutions and we all work together on it. We had one, one success story about climate and that's the ozone hole. So we discovered that certain chemical destroys the ozone hole and if you destroy the ozone hole, you get more ultraviolet radi- radiation and that poses an tremendous risk to everyone. And amazingly society was able, the humanity was able to do the right thing and do an international treaty and, and obey it, and follow up on it. And we have been able to reduce the size of the ozone hole. This is a this is a huge, a huge success story. This is for this is what we should try to do more. So, you know, the problem with all of this situation is that uh, you know, if you come up with the philosophy, America first, then nobody there's going to be no collaboration, no cooperation. Of course, everybody understands that you're going to to care about your interests, but you also have to understand that your interests depend on humanity as a whole working together to reduce the threat of climate change. So it's in yourself, you want America to be first, you have to deal with climate change. You can deal with climate change unless you work with China on this one. So it's in your selfish interest to collaborate. Okay. It's like, you know, you have to have a, you need to do some What is it? All kind of exercise, you know, in corporate retreat, they do sometimes this, this kind of thing that you have to build a bridge and you must, people must work together to do that. Yes. Okay. And unless they can do it together. In fact, I teach a course now and the students have to work in teams. And I tell them, you get one grade for the two people. If you work well together, everybody gets a better grade. If you don't work well together, doesn't matter if you did well. If the other guy person did not do well, you get the same grade for the team. It's one grade for the team. So we, we have to, we get one grade at the end of the day with climate change. We all have the same grade in humanity. You know, is the earth what happened here to, to earth. Okay. You know, it, it's going to be different problems. It's fires in, in California and tropical storm and hurricanes here in Houston and other threats somewhere else. But overall, unless we find a way to work together, we all suffer. Yes. So, this is this is one of the lessons you have to t- Everybody has children, has to teach the children, the two children. If you have more than one child, I have only one, one son. But if you have more than one, work together. It's better for both of you to work together.
0: Yes.
1: And exactly. being, being, being like, a, like a me, 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 and you lose. You personally lose if you have this attitude, me, 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 me. me. Yes, very true. We
0: need to have a civilization thinking. Instead of a, of a tribal thinking that uh, we are witnessing all across nations at the moment. So you're absolutely right. That is an excellent analysis, an excellent presentation and very good information. I'm sure our uh, global viewers and listeners are going to benefit tremendously from what you had to what you shared today. So thank you so much, Professor wardy for participating in this roundup today. We are My briefly- pleasure. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on lessons from COVID-19 and need to build resilient systems. And our global viewers and listeners, as I just said, that they are going to benefit tremendously and they would hopefully get an incentive to work together and create, you know, systems that can solve the problem for the coming tomorrow. And so as a result, this is kind of dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. So Namaste. Risk Group is a strategic security risk research platform and community. Through the Risk Roundup Initiative, Risk Group and I are on a mission to talk with a billion people, innovators, scientists, entrepreneurs, futurists, technologists, policymakers to decision makers. And the reason behind this effort through the Risk Roundup Initiative is to research, review, rate and report strategic security risk facing humanity. This collective intelligence effort is essential to understand where we need to focus for our collective security, and for what destructive forces we need to be mindful about. So, thank you so much for being the part of the conversation. Until next time, I'm Jay Shree, host of this kind of signing off. See you next time.
1: Thank it's you. my pleasure.